Heavenly Father, we pray right now that you would grant us your spirit. I pray, God, you would speak to our hearts and to our minds. And I pray, Lord, those here this morning that perhaps need a jumpstart, a jolt in their spiritual life, Lord, they would get it. Lord, I pray as we look at this idea of stuck. Lord, in your word, you've called us to life and life more abundantly. To something beyond what we can understand. And yet, so few of us are achieving or living that. And I pray, God, that as we look at this person this morning who is stuck, I pray, Lord, that we would see that this is not a permanent state. This is not a failure, but instead... It can be something more. And I pray, God, you would help us realize that. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, well, good morning. Welcome. If you are visiting with us, we want to say thank you so much for joining us on this long weekend. Uh, This morning, we're starting off a new series called Stuck. You know, some people ask me, how do I pick my sermons? Well, I kind of go for a fortune cookie. I crack it open and I see what's in there. Not close, but actually, my sermons kind of come out of a couple different places. But one of them is conversations is when I talk to people, I think to myself, what's the theme I'm seeing? And what's interesting about God is that if you kind of think about your life and and what's going on, God shows you some patterns. And one of the patterns of conversations I've had over the last several months are of people who are stuck, stuck in their lives. And let me explain that for you. But before we get to that, let me kind of uh, introduce you to a person named Angela Duckworth. Uh, One of the things I love about the summertime is I get to catch up on my reading. My fiction reading, which I'm all caught up on now, but then I also grab some nonfiction stuff. So um, I'm reading right now, well, Grit by Angela Duckworth. I'm reading uh, Ego is the Enemy by Ryan Holiday, um, Peak by Eric Sanders, and um, Chuck Klosterman's new book, What If We're Wrong. It's just this eclectic reading. But what's the interesting thing about that, there's a theme throughout these books that I'm picking up on. Angela Duckworth is a PhD. She went to Oxford. She went to, yeah, like she's like brilliant, right? And she wrote this book, by the way, great summertime reading. Or not, depending. Um, But this is the quote that she said in her talk, at the TED Talk there. In all those very different contexts, one characteristic emerged as a significant predictor predictor of success. And it wasn't social intelligence, it wasn't good looks, physical health, and it wasn't IQ. It was grit. Grit is passion and perseverance for very long-term goals. Grit is having stamina. Grit is sticking with your future day in, day out. Not just for the week, not just for the month but for years, and working really hard to make that, make that future a reality. Grit is living life, uh, living life like it's a marathon, not a sprint. One of the things that's interesting is that as I was reading this book, the spirit was kind of taking it and, and like leaping it off the page because the conversations I was having was directly connected to this. Here's the thing I've been thinking about for the last several months. Why do some Christians seem to get it and just grow? And yet others stall. What is the difference between them? Now, I'm not going to say that Angela Duckworth wrote this book in a Christian context, faith context. She did not. But a lot of the things she was saying in it really resonated with me in regards to that. One of the quotes that jumped out of the book was this one here. Enthusiasm is common. Endurance is rare. I thought, wow. I literally sat and I looked at that page for a, a half hour and I got my, uh, my, uh, my notebook out and I was just writing thoughts on this, right? Because what do we do in church? We know enthusiasm. Let's get excited. Here's lights, there's explosions, here's a guest speaker. Here, we're going to give this thing away. We're, we're going to excite you. And enthusiasm is so great. We get so excited. Endurance, however, that's rare. 
And I began to realize something, that one of the things we don't teach in church, one of the things we don't teach in our faith journey, is that there's something that has to happen, something transformative that needs to take place in our lives in order to take us from the enthusiasm of that first moment to our rest of our lives. I ran, I run into Eustace. You know them. I used to go to church. I used to believe in God. I used to believe this. I, right? The Eustace. There is a great host of Eustace in, in, in our city, your next door neighbor, in our churches. As a matter of fact, uh, I read this book a couple years back, probably like a decade ago now, and it's a book by George Barna. The book's called Second Coming of the Church, and he said this in the book, and I always remember this quote. He said, the second largest mission field in North America today, besides the unchurched, is the overchurched. And he says, it's those Christians who have fallen asleep, have stopped growing, have stopped living abundant lives in our churches. And the fact is, he's absolutely correct. In over tw- uh, 20 years of ministry, this, I see this all the time, right? One of the things I used to say as a youth pastor drove me crazy, right? So as a youth pastor, I used to do a lot of retreats, much to my wife's dismay. I do like seven retreats in a year. And we'd come back from a retreat with junior high, youth and young adults, and the bus would come in, and we'd all stumble off the bus looking like homeless people, really, and smelling like homeless people as well, too, right? And we'd, we'd get off the bus, and the parents would come up to me and would say the same thing. And I've told this before, and I'm going to repeat it. They would say this, they, something like this, oh, I remember those retreats when I was a youth, or when I was a young adult, how God spoke to me, how I felt God's presence. And my thought was, these are things I think but never say, which you should be grateful that I have those, at least I have that buffer in my life, is I feel like saying to these adults, what's God doing now? Why do we got to look to the past for when you felt close to God? Do you feel close to him now? And just like you're looking at me, I never said that, but I thought it. And it's like, why do we have to look to what happened in the past, to that moment in time, right? And so this idea of grit is something that I've been thinking about. But let's just talk about the idea of stuck. Being stuck is finding ourselves unmoved in our faith journey. When we talk about Christianity, there's lots of ways to describe it, but I like the concept of faith journey because it, it kind of harkens back to Pilgrim's Progress or very Tolkien or Lewis-ish, like that we are on a journey. This is something that goes on for a long time, and I like that actually, right? And I like that fact in a journey that, you know, if you've ever gone on a long road trip, the first hour is exciting, it's fun, and you put the music in, but after two hours, you want to punch the person next to you, and they're sleeping on you. It's just, it's just not fun anymore, right? It's this idea that it's a journey. And the fact is, Christianity is a journey. It's not always a pleasant journey, though. And it never was meant to be, but we've kind of portrayed it in such a way that it's always uphill. Like people said to me that, oh, I, since I became a Christian, my life fell apart. And I'm like, it's kind of the point, actually. You've got to dismantle before you can reassemble. And that's kind of what the Holy Spirit does. And so this idea is that I, I find more and more that people are stuck in their lives. And the second part is this. We have made faith so conditional that we have surrendered our growth to life and circumstances. Remember a couple of weeks ago I told you about that story about that church plant pastor that I met when I was in seminary? He was a church plant pastor in China. We didn't even know his name. We, we weren't allowed to know his name, but he was talking about the churches he's planting in the underground church in China. And again, remember, this is like 20 years ago when we were just starting to hear about the thousands upon thousands of Chinese Christians that were coming to the Lord. And he was telling us stories about imprisonment, of death, of people losing property. It was just incredible. But one of the things he said, though, was that this did not dissuade people from following Jesus. And I remember thinking to myself, if a church service isn't perfect, people walk away as if they haven't met with God. 
If anything does not go completely correct, the worship, the teaching, whatever it would be, the person sitting next to you, like if they're snoring, if they're whatever they are, whether we're in cologne or perfume, if things don't go just right, we walk away going, well, God wasn't there. It wasn't perfect. I wasn't entertained and so on and so forth, right? We have surrendered our growth to life and circumstances. And yet Paul himself says in the book of Romans that what can separate us from the love of God? And he goes through this list. Basically, at the end of the list, just so you haven't missed anything, he says, nothing in all of creation. But what he meant to say was not that, that there is nothing the enemy can do that can pull you away from God, but there's many things that we can do to separate ourselves from God. There is nothing externally to us that can remove us from God. So what's interesting is that we have made our faith so conditional that now we say, well, if things don't go the right way, if, if life doesn't go my way, if circumstances don't go my way, well, then I don't love God anymore. And that's where we get the Eustace. Many times when I hear about the Eustace, it's, I used to believe in God, but then I prayed for this one thing, this one circumstance. I pray, God, take it away from me. I pray, God, let me get this job or let me get this person in my life. Let me have this happen. It didn't happen. And therefore, God isn't real, and therefore, I used to believe in God. We, like, where does that even come from? Well, it's clear where it comes from. It comes from our capitalistic North American consumeristic culture saying, you know, God's the big ATM in the sky, and therefore, he should do what I require. Therefore, that's, that's what God wants. And it's kind of like, it doesn't really work that way. So people are stuck, and I've, I'm seeing this more and more. There are two kinds of stuck, and we're going to be looking at this for the next couple of weeks. The first kind is a stuck of stagnation, and the other is a stuck of choices. When I talk to Christ followers who are stuck at some point in time, there are two ways I look at it. The one stuck is stagnation, and we're going to look at that this morning. But the other one is of choices, and we're going to look at that next week. And these are the two areas. Now, understand something. If you're stuck in the friend zone, that's a whole different sermon, and I can't really deal with that right now, okay? So that's something you're going to have to take care of on your own, right? We're talking about stuck in a faith. If you're stuck in your career, if you're stuck in, in whatever, I get it, but that's not what I'm addressing here. I'm addressing your faith journey. That's primarily what we're kind of trying to look at here. So there's two kinds of stuck, and that's the stuck that we're going to look at. Now, when I talk to people and they tell me, oh, you know, I'm stuck or I haven't really this or that, I don't know if you realize how much of a dangerous or precarious position you've placed yourself in. See, what we've said to ourselves is stuck is that something that's going to happen and and it's going to, I'm going to get unstuck somehow, some way, right? But I want you to know something, that stuck is as dangerous as a position spiritually as you could ever get. One of the things you need to understand about Jesus and his teachings, he uses language around farmers. And now, because I work for a farmer, I am way more um, in tune with nature. And, and what I mean by that is simply this. Like, I, like, when I go to the farm to pick up the truck to deliver milk, you know, uh, Jim, my farmer, is like, you know, talks about the rain right? We haven't had a lot of rain, and you know, it's corn, and I'm like, I'm thinking, what, what do you mean? We're not going to get Hurley's corn? That can't happen. Like, I need Hurley's corn, because that stuff is, 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 is over the top. I think you could take that stuff downtown Toronto and sell it on the streets. Anyways, that's another conversation, right? Jesus uses language of nature to describe spirituality because he's trying to get to a point. The point is this, that spirituality, your faith journey, is not meant to be something without fruit, in Mark chapter 4, verse 20, others like seed on sown on good soil heard the word, accepted, produce a crop, grow, some 30, some 60, some 100 times what was sown. That's a parable of the story. You know that story, right? But it's time and time again Jesus comes back to you. Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. See, the idea Jesus is always trying to teach in his parables is that you are meant to grow. 
You are meant to progress, right? So being stuck is a little bit more dangerous because the opposite then is this. When Jesus starts saying, okay, if you're not growing, this is what happens, right? And so we see this in different parts. In Luke chapter 13, verse 7, this is Jesus speaking. For three years now, I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree, and I haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up soil? The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and are burned. See, as much as people think that stuck is something that is benign, that is something that is neutral, it is not. And according to Christ's teaching, according to the, the spirit of the Bible, Jesus didn't die on the cross just for us to be comfortable. God didn't give us the Holy Spirit just for us to maintain. Instead, he gave it to us to work through. And please hear me very clearly. We talk about this at UCC, but I'm not talking about outcome-based Christianity where your life becomes changed, becomes better. We're not talking about that. It just simply means that through the good times and the bad times, we cling to our Savior and we grow. In the bad times and the good times, we, both, we, we grow. So what you need to understand is being stuck is not a passive state. It is the active state of spiritual deterioration. Let me repeat that. Being stuck is not a passive state. It is the active state of spiritual deterioration. If you are stuck, and again, only you can answer that, but if you talk about your faith journey and look to the past, that's probably a good indicator that you are stuck. If you think of what has happened, that's probably a good indicator. But what you're doing is you're reverting back to when you felt close to God, but you don't feel that now. And also for the future. If you're not believing in God for something in the future, you might be stuck. Because remember, it's not just simply this point of I'm going to follow Jesus and that's it. It's I'm going to follow Jesus and I'm going to be transformed into his image for the rest of my life. And if that is not the place you find yourself, you may be stuck in, in, in this idea, in this condition. We're going to look at one of the most famous stuck people in the New Testament, Paul the Apostle. Now, as soon as I say that, many of you say to yourself, Paul was not stuck. Paul is one of the greatest writers in the New Testament and one of the greatest evangelists in the New Testament. But I bet you didn't know that he was stuck in his, in his ministry. Let me take a look here. Um, you don't have to bother taking your Bible. We're going to be bouncing around a little bit because I want to put together Paul's resume for you. And Paul's second half of his resume is very, very impressive. Okay? There is nobody who can match his resume in Christendom. But the beginning of his resume, not as impressive. And I want to show you something here, okay? So, and I'm also going to, as I, as I kind of unpack Paul, I'm going to put some dates on there because I need you to see a timeline, and I'll show you that timeline in, in fullness. So in 31 AD, at the beginning of the church, we are introduced to Paul, otherwise known as Saul, right? And you know the story. This is when Stephen was killed for his faith. At this, they covered the ears and yelling at the top of their voices. They all rushed at him. This is Stephen. Dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. And Saul approved of their killing of him. Now, that concept of laying your, 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 um, your, your, your coats down was an act of respect in, in the Jewish context. So what they're saying is Paul, who, uh, Saul, who is a, represent, a representative of the Jewish high council, was saying it is good that we eradicate this cult of Christianity that is trying to pervert Judaism as we've seen it for thousands of years. And in 31 AD, we finally get introduced to Saul. 
it's not a very impressive beginning, is it? Right? It's not, like again, one of the things I always say to people who think the Bible was created by someone in their backyard, you wouldn't write this about the here's the Bible. You wouldn't start off with one of the greatest events of the Bible saying that his job was to hunt out and seek out Christians and hand them over to be killed. It's not really what you would say. Right? So this, in 31 AD, we get introduced to a guy named Saul, and we see, about, we see a little bit about him. Now, we've got to fast forward um, about three years. Now, one of the things you have to understand is that the book of Acts is not day-to-day. The book of Acts actually covers about 50 years. Okay? And so when you look through the book of Acts, you're jumping from chapter to chapter, but it's not next day. It's actually three years or may have, been, may have passed. So you need to keep that in mind, right? Because the next time we run into Paul or Saul, is in Acts chapter 9. And you know this story, right? This is in 34 AD. Paul is going to Damascus to get permission to hunt out Christians to kill them, right? But of course, on his way, he encounters Jesus. And you know the story, right? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Remember this moment, right? Where, where, where Saul's on the road, he sees Jesus, and he's blind. He has to be led into the city and wait there for a prophet to come and, and, and to pray with him. This is as dramatic as you get in regards to a conversion story, right? Like we at UCC, we share our testimonies. Everybody wants this one, right? Jesus appeared to me in a taco or, or you know, at something like that, right? And, and, I, and, I, and I saw him, and I gave my heart to Jesus, right? That would be a great one, but this is actually pretty amazing, Right? Somebody who is persecuting the church gets a up-close personal with Jesus, right? Now, from here, though, things don't go as planned. And this is the part we don't understand, right? So Paul encounters Jesus. He gets really excited, and he tries to go out and change his occupation from persecutor of the church to somebody who's trying to help the church. But guess what? It doesn't go that well. In verse 23, after many days he had gone by, there is a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. In verse 26, when he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was really a disciple. In verse 29, he talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. Paul's early journeys in Christianity are not going very well. As a matter of fact, when you look at his early years, this is the theme that comes out. They tried to kill him, they tried to beat him, or they tried to avoid him because they thought it was a trap. And that's smart, right? This guy who killed Stephen, who was there, who didn't kill Stephen, but was representation of the high council, you're not going to trust that guy, really. He doesn't show, hey, I'm a Christian now. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you are. Why don't you just go over there? We're going to be over here. We're going to meet Friday night somewhere, and we'll meet Saturday night somewhere else, right? We're not going to tell you, right? He's the guy you're going to avoid, and rightfully so, because he hadn't really earned it. And in Paul's early years, this is three years, by the way, this is passing by, He's trying to get into the church. He's trying to get people to talk to him. People are like, I don't think so. Right? And so at the end of it, all they can do in 39 AD, remember, remember uh, Paul encountered Jesus in 34 AD? In 39 AD, his, his first part of his ministry is such a mess. Uh, all they can do is this. When the believers learned of this, they took him to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Now, why is this significant? Tarsus is where his family's from. This is where he was born right? At the end of his ministry, five years of trying to be a, a pastor or, or an evangelist in the early church, they're like, okay, Paul, you're making way more of a mess of things than that. Let's just send you home, okay? Now, remember, Paul's going home. He doesn't have a job anymore. He lost his job with the, with the Jewish high council. So what's he going to do now? Tent making, like literally making tents. That's the only occupation that he has. And guess what? 
He stays in Tarsus for four years. And we never hear anything from him again. For that four-year period, there's no writing about it. We don't know what's happening. But we do know this. Paul is stuck. He's stuck. The church has no idea what to do with him. The Christians aren't accepting him. No one's listening to him. There's no power about his ministry that's showing him as somebody who's called by God. So they send him to Tarsus, and he sits there for four years. Now, the reason that's important is because what we're talking about here, when you look at the timeline, right? In 31 AD, we meet Paul, right? In 34 AD, Paul meets Jesus. But in 39 AD, Paul is sent back home because what do you do with this guy? What do you do with him? And for four years, Paul sits in Tarsus. He doesn't write. He doesn't teach. And there's no record of what happened there. You know why there's no record? He's not doing much. I actually believe a little bit more was happening, but the scriptures are are silent in this period of time. Paul is stuck. Now, the reason I call the first stuck, the stuck of stagnation, is because stagnation is an act, a state of inactivity. It's stale. Now, the root of uh, stagnation is the Latin word standing water, stagnatum. The stagnation of water can be a serious problem in parts of the world where mosquitoes spread diseases like malaria or where there's a shortage of drinking water. Now, why am I telling you this? In Revelations, there's a scripture that you know, but I want to show you something here, okay? In Revelations, God says, I'm going to spit out those who are lukewarm. But did you know the word is not really lukewarm that he used in there in the actual context? John has a different word he could use there, but this is what he used. Let me show you something here. So because you are lukewarm... The word in the Greek is tepid and stale, neither hot nor cold. I'm about to spit, vomit you out of my mouth. The Greek word here is mao, which is to vomit. There's another word, patua, which means to spit out that John could have used if that's what he meant. Warm water doesn't make you vomit. Stagnant water does. I don't know about you, but I like actually room temperature water. I do. I don't like it cold. It hurts my teeth. That's another story, right? So I actually like room temperature, but I don't drink it and throw up. If I did, that's, I'd better go to the doctor, right? The word that, that John is trying to use here of how God reacts to stagnation is vomit, right? Only stagnant water makes you vomit, not, not lukewarm water, right? Because the writer uses hot and cold, we automatically go to lukewarm as this is a bad state. And it is, but what he's really saying here is God cannot stand stagnation. And somebody who is stagnant is so repulsive to the Spirit of God that God spits that individual out of his mouth. It's a metaphor to talk about relationship and closeness with God. And so what we see here is that when we talk about stagnation, what we have to say about it is that this is not something that is passive. And I need you to be very, I need you to hear me very clearly here. As I'm talking about this, I don't want some of you, you're like, well, I haven't heard from God in a week, or I haven't. Please hear me, okay? Stagnation is the is the unwillingness to move or the uncertainty of where to move, right, as far as uh, your, your journey with God. But if you are reading your Bible, you are in community, you are like, you're not stagnant, okay? Because I know that some of you are automatically going, oh, I'm stagnant, I'm stagnant, God's me up. He's not, okay? It's not you, okay? Stagnation is more about a spiritual passion that has died in a person, right? It's the going through of motions without actually... I don't want to use the word feeling because I don't have any, but uh, I, what I mean is that I know I have feelings, but they're, they're deep down there somewhere. But it's more not so much about the emotions, not the feeling part of it. It's about saying, you know what, Lord, 
What do you want from me? Every day we wake up, we have, God gives us a choice. That day is a choice. The choice is, what do I do with my day? What do I do with God's? What, what does God want me to do with it? And not every one of us, include myself, wake up going, good day, Lord, I want to work for you today. I want to do whatever you want. If you're that person, I don't want to hang out with you. We cannot hang because that, that that's a weird individual. No. When I talk about stagnation, it's when you look at your, at your spiritual life, over a period of time, if you've not felt God moving, you might be stagnant. If, if those songs we sang this morning, whether you knew them or not, if the words not penetrate some part of your spirit, you might be stagnant. You might be unmoving. If, 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 if you're not wrestling, and you know what? Wrestling with God is, active, is, is activity. There's lots of things, lots of times I wrestle with God. I'm like, Lord, I don't understand this. Lord, I don't understand why this is going on this way. Lord, I don't understand the U.S. politics right now. I don't know what's going on, right? I'm wrestling. With, like, that's okay. God likes a wrestling match. You'll leave limping, but he likes a wrestling match, right? He, he does. That's active. As a matter of fact, I like even people who are angry with God. I like some kind of reaction. What I don't like, or what I don't think God likes is this. Great, now the Baptist beat us for chalet. Ugh, what am I going to do here? Right. That's, not, that's not really what God wants. So this concept of stagnation is, is, is way more serious than I think I'm trying to, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be, I was, see, we're, we're, I was trying to use the word cute, but that's my work with me. I, I'm, try, I'm trying to be funny, but the thing is, though, is this is serious. This is serious, right? Now, when you look at stagnation, whether it's in a body of water, I've been reading up on this as far as, like, how do you cure a stagnant pond or a stagnant body of water? Well, everybody says the same thing. There has to be an infusion of something else external to that, right? There has to be some, some, some fresh water or some movement that has to take place. So I'm going to show you what the cure for stagnation is. And the cure for stagnation is a guy by the name of Joseph. Now, you don't know him as Joseph because that's not his name. It actually is his name, but we only hear his name one time. And every time after that, they give him a nickname. So in, uh, in Acts chapter 4, we meet uh, this guy. His name is Barnabas. But that's not his name. His name is actually Joseph. So in Acts chapter 4, it says, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. This is the first time that we meet this guy, right? Now, imagine this, right? We all have nicknames, some flattering and not. Okay? Imagine if your nickname is son of encouragement, right? Bar in the Hebrew, bar means uh, son of, right? So um, that's how they would, uh, so Nabas is exactly the name. So Bar Nabas, right? Now, the word Nabas actually doesn't mean encouragement. It can mean encouragement, but the root word of it is from the Greek, and the root word is periklesis. Now, for some of you who've been in the church a while, you may recognize that word because this is the same word to describe the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, when Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit in John chapter 14, uh, 15, 16, 17, he calls the Holy Spirit the paraclete, right? The comforter, one who comes alongside. But we know it's not just comforter or encourager. There's way more to it than that. So the word paraclesis means this, a calling near, summons, exhortation, admonition, encouragement, uh, consolation, comfort, solace, that which affords comfort or refreshment, persuasive discourse, stirring address. So, when we think of Barnabas, we think of like a guy comes along going, oh, good job, way to go, good job, right? That's not actually what it means. Sometimes Barnabas will come along going, okay, get off your, 
um, behind. Um, move, get up, get up, do something. Come on, right? Encourager does not necessarily mean you're doing a great job doing nothing. Encourager means you realize you're not doing anything, right? Let's talk about this. Let's talk about this, right? Barnabas plays a very pivotal role in the life of Paul. I'm going to show you in a second why. Because Barnabas is who he was. The first thing we learn about Barnabas is he has a piece of property. So he might be a little bit wealthy. But he decides himself, you know what? I'm going to sell this, and I'm going to put it at the apostles' feet, and they can use this to help whoever they want. Whoever this guy is, that says a lot about his character. It says a lot about his belief, but also it says a lot about how Christ has penetrated his life and has changed and transformed him. So this is the first time that we meet Barnabas in the book of Acts. We meet him again in Acts chapter 9. You remember Acts chapter 9. This is the Damascus Road, right? This is Paul trying to get an audience with the disciples, right? And everyone's like, stay away, stay away, except for Barnabas. When he, Saul, came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was really a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. Paul was trying to figure out what Jesus meant to him. What has his life looked like after encountering Jesus? And everybody in his life said, okay, stay away. Except for Barnabas, Joseph the Levite from Cyprus. He was a Greek Christ follower. And he says about to Paul, he goes, okay, listen, I don't know about Paul, but maybe we could take a chance on him. And guess what? Barnabas lost out, right? Because remember, in a, in a few years, they're going to send Paul back to Tarsus, right? But whoever Barnabas was, he made an impression upon Paul because it's now this relationship that God's going to use to take Paul out of his stuck. Remember I told you Paul was stuck in Tarsus for four years? Look at this now, next time, we, we, next time we encounter Paul. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. That's the time, that was a place that phrase Christian was actually started to use. Now, what's interesting, if you look at a map, Tarsus is actually beyond Antioch. So there's Jerusalem down here, there's, there's Antioch here, and there's Tarsus. Saul, I'm sorry, not Saul, Barnabas, by the disciples, like, okay, go to Antioch. We hear there's Christians there. And Barnabas is like, yeah. On the way there, God says, hey, Barnabas, do you remember that guy named Saul? Well, he's, he's sitting in Tarsus, not knowing what to do. Go get him. Go get him. So, Saul, uh, so Barnabas goes over Antioch, gets Saul, and brings him back to Antioch and spends an entire year mentoring him and discipling him. Now, imagine this, okay? Barnabas walks down to the docks where, 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 where tent makers would work, right? Because it, it, it was a craft where they had to kind of cure the materials and all that, right? It's kind of smelly. And there's Saul making tents. And who shows up? Saul! Saul! And Saul sees the only Christian that was nice to him, Barnabas. And Saul's like, Barnabas, what are you doing here? Barnabas like, I came to get you. Saul's like, don't. I, I messed up. 
I don't know what I'm doing. I'm, I, 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 like, I don't think the church is going to love me. I don't think, I don't think anything is going to happen. Just, just go. Thanks for visiting. You know, go be on your way. And Barnabas is like, Saul, God told me to come get you. You and I need to go to Antioch. There's work to be done there. And Saul, I, I, I don't know. I don't know what, 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 what Saul's thinking. But when you read the passion in Paul's letters, I have a sense that Paul is at a very low point of his life right now. He gave everything up for Jesus for no reward, for no return. And for four years, he's been sitting, living with his parents in their home, which for a Jewish male is, is kind of an embarrassment. Not married, right? Making tents. He's just, he's just stuck. Until God sends the only person that was ever nice to, to Paul, to Saul, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, known as Barnabas. See, the only way you can get unstuck is by somebody external to you encouraging you out of your stuckness. Stagnant water is a problem of, of immobility, of being surrounded by the same. The cure must be an external infusion. If Barnabas didn't help Paul, we wouldn't have Paul today. If Barnabas didn't find Saul in Tarsus and say to him, you know what, you need to come with me, Paul would not have been the Paul we know today. And isn't it interesting that when God orders his steps, when God puts things together, the only person that Paul encounters in Jerusalem that, that advocates for him is Barnabas. So that's exactly the person that God sends to unstuck Paul from Tarsus. Ten years ago, I was stuck. I was, I just uh, uh, resigned from a church I was working at, and it was an okay experience. But ministry can be uh, full of ups and downs, to say it lightly. And I, I, I thought, you know what? I need, uh, I need some time away from church. I, I, we attended church, of course, but I wasn't on staff. I wasn't leading. I wasn't volunteering. I just was a little burnt out, and I just needed some time away from church. That time away was meant to be a few months, turned into a few years. And uh, about 10 years ago, my wife and I were at a camp, and God used a book and a person to unstuck me. See, I was sitting there, and I just thought to, I thought to myself, because of what had happened at the last church, that maybe God was done with me, that maybe I had come to the end of what God had called me to, and that I should probably find a different path for my life. And it was in that moment, it was in Coburg, I, I, I remember it like it was yesterday, my wife and I both read a book that God used by his spirit. It wasn't a book about leadership. It wasn't anything about being unstuck. It was actually kind of a ridiculous book, but it spoke to us. And we both realized that God was calling us to something more, to go back into ministry. But I didn't know what that looked like. I had been so far out of it that I didn't, I, I just didn't know. But I promised the Lord that if he would find, if he would just work with me in somehow, some way, I said, Lord, my life is yours again. I, I gave it back to you. And not that I wasn't serving God, but I was stuck. I was immobile in my, in my growth. And for you, you need to understand, it's not about being a pastor. That's, that's a calling that you have to kind of work through with the Lord. But for me, that's what God, that's why I was created. There's no other way of saying it, right? A friend of mine once said to me that all my skill sets don't make sense except for in ministry. And even then, uh, you know, we'll see, right? So I, from that, on August, uh, I think it was August 27th, we go back to, we come back from Coburg to Waterloo. And a guy by the name of Dan Murray taps me on the shoulder. Dan Murray was my boss at my last church and one of the greatest uh, men of God I've ever met. He 
God used him. We just had a coffee. He just contacted me and said, hey, let's have coffee. And I'm like, okay, sure. And Dan meets me. He's like, <laughs> don't you hate when people say this? So what's God doing in your life? Nothing. He's doing nothing in my life. I'm, I, I don't know what's going on, right? Uh, and I kind of just blurted that out. And Dan's like, okay, here's the deal. Let's get you back and let's get you involved. Like, we, need you to, we need some volunteer help and, and whatnot. And so I said, okay. So from there, uh, that was the conversation I had with him in September, a couple weeks into September. Literally by December, I'm on staff with him full-time at the church there. Now, the reason I'm saying to you that I'm thinking about Saul and his stuckness is I've been there. I know what it's like to be stuck. And if Dan hadn't found me, if God didn't find me where I was, I'd still be there. I'd still be stuck. I would still be unsure of, of what to do. See, I did not have the skills. I did not have the talent. I didn't have anything to unstick myself. But somebody who believed in me said, listen, let's get you back involved. And you know what's interesting? Is when you look at Paul's letters, you see this theme. Every letter Paul writes, Paul in some way, some fashion says, oh, by the way, find somebody to help them. Right? Just, just a couple examples. You see this, it's like a fingerprint throughout Paul's letters because Paul himself realizes that if Barnabas didn't come along, where would he be? Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, carry each other's burdens in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. Romans 15, 1, we who are strong ought to bear the feelings of the weak and not please ourselves. Philippians 2, 3 to 4, rather in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. 2 Corinthians 5, 18, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. 1 Thessalonians 5, 11, therefore encourage one another and build each other up just in fact you are doing. It is so interesting that when you understand that Paul was stuck and Barnabas comes along and, and, and gets him in back into what he needs to be, that's the theme of Paul's ministry. From there on out, Paul says to people, listen, find him. Find those who are stuck. Encourage one another. Build one another up. I could have used 1 Corinthians 12, right, the body of Christ analogy. I could have used that one. The fact is this. The reason why Paul tells people to do this, because he was one of those people. So here's your homework. We all know people who are stuck. We all know people who are immobile in their faith. And because they don't realize it, it's up to us to encourage them to be the Barnabases of their life and, and to call them out of what, wherever they're at. See, People think that they're stuck. People think that they're, in, they're, they're stagnant and it's, it's a passive state. It's not. It's the steps away from God and what he's called you to. And so in the first stuck, it's the external, right? It's the overchurch that we need to go to and we need to encourage them and we need to jostle them out of their sleep and say, do you realize what you're doing here? This, this passive way of expressing your faith is not what God has called you to. And don't shake them literally, but, you know, this idea of that praying the spirit, saying, Lord, what do I do? I realize I've been, since I'm running this series, I, there's people in my life that I need to, I need to get to. I graduated, uh, when I graduated seminary, and I did graduate, in case you're wondering, I graduated a class of 104 people. There's 104 in my graduating class. Of those 104, I've been kind of trying to figure it out, only seven of us are in full-time ministry. I got a lot of people I got a hold of. I got to connect with. And not that they have to be in ministry, no. But you leave ministry, you tend, you, you sometimes can leave your faith a little bit. 
And so I need to reach out to these people, people I went to school with, people who were passionate as I was over the Lord. Right? There has to be a grit. See what I did? There has to be a grit, passion, and perseverance for a long-term goal. And I'm calling every one of you this morning to be the Barnabas, to find those people, to pray for those people, to encourage those people, and draw them back into a life-giving relationship with God. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, I thank you that you love us. I thank you that you are merciful to us. I thank you, God, that you are all these things and more. I pray, Lord God, that you would open our eyes to the people who are stuck in our lives. It seems weird to think, God, that Paul the Apostle, the greatest individual in the New Testament, in, in the book of Acts onwards, is, is somebody who is stuck. But Lord, you raised up a guy named Joseph. And he was the Barnabas to Paul. He calls Paul out of his stagnation. He calls Paul out of his downward spiral in his faith and then calls him back into what you've called him to. God, I pray you would open our eyes and our hearts to those who are, who are stuck in our lives as well. It could be so many different people. Give us the courage and the strength and the compassion to call these individuals out of their slumber, their sleep, and awaken them once again to your life, to your spirit, Lord. God, I thank you that you are merciful with us. I thank you that when we are stuck, that when we are that, that, Lord, you have not forgotten about us, but instead you call to us time and time again. Raise up a generation of Barnabases to reach out to the Eustas, to the overchurch, Lord. Call us back into an abundant life with you. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.